Welcome to episode 19 of BachCast. I'm your host, John Hendren, and in this episode, we look at a double concerto by Bach in the catalog BWV 1060. We're listening right now to the middle movement of this three-movement concerto, and this comes from an album by the Jacques Lussier Trio, entitled Encore. So, Bach wrote concertos. We know that we've we started this uh, whole series looking at the Brandenburg concertos, and we know that he was capable and quite willing to really go out there and use a number of different instrumental colors to put together a concerto. And that set really uh, is, is like a, a kaleidoscope. He not only played with the three-movement plan, but we get a, one of the concertos, number three, is in basically two movements, and then we get the first that's in four. And he he's forward-thinking in some, he's backward-thinking in others. It was really a collection that he just tried everything out. Now, if you look at 1060, if you look it up on uh, Amazon or Archive Music, wherever you like to buy your music, uh, or if you like to stream music, maybe go to Spotify, uh, you do 1060 in there, you're going to find multiple versions of this concerto. And I would say that there's three versions out there. And the third is sort of a catch-all for everything that doesn't include the first two. So the first version, the main version of this concerto is for two harpsichords. And if you think back to one of our earlier episodes where we looked at um, the concertos that were written or arranged, as we believe, for the Zimmerman's Coffee House in Leipzig, um, this very well could have been the second version of the concerto that Bach would have arranged for the purposes of public entertainment. And because we believe that the harpsichords were the mainstay there, and he likely could have performed this maybe with his son, uh, Carl Philip Emanuel, at the coffee house. Uh, that's probably the second version. If you think of it as the second version, well, what was the original? And what, where might it have started? Well, there, musicologists have gone back and looked at the range of the instruments, and they've convinced themselves that this must have been originally written for a different combination perhaps for violin and oboe. And so in the catalog, you'll sometimes see this listed as 1060A or 1060R uh, for arrangement, I think. Um, and there's a lot of good recordings out there in, in that format. And the key changes a little bit to accommodate the different instruments. But other than that, um, except for some of the figuration in, in the hands, uh, the one line maps itself really well to the oboe and the other uh, to the violin. So we've got two versions of this and then I said there's a third and that's that's really where people have gone out and said well wait a minute who says it has to be for oboe and violin uh, what other things are out there and obviously uh, the sky's the limit really we just heard a, a kind of a jazz trio version which uh, I've I've played some of them before, so it's not too much of a surprise that people are, are take, taken to modernize Bach. Uh, the Academy of Ancient Music under Andrew Manzi 
recorded this concerto, but not with a violin. He chose to give the second line to Rachel Podger, and they released this uh, in the 90s, I believe, um, with two violins, which is a different type of sound, but basically the same concerto once again. And there's been other arrangements as well that, that I'll put in the show notes that you can take a look at. So basically, it's a popular concerto. If people are arranging it, coming out with different versions on different instruments, um, you know, it's a popular song. And why? I think that the first and the third movements are really strong. They're in a minor key, um, and they've got really neat themes. And Bach really is investing his energy in this kind of Italian uh, style of a concerto, this idea of a ritornello. The, um, the concerto starts out with, a, with a, just a big theme. There's no start to this. There's no lead up to it. It just, boom, it's raw. <laughs> you just get this, this, this really good theme. And I've talked about the role of invention again. Bach was really good at coming with really good themes. And one of the reasons he probably spent so much time on those is because he wanted to be able to use them in a contrapuntal setting where he could have those that melody, that theme, maybe appear in the bass, maybe appear in a secondary voice, maybe he's going to, you know, write in a fugal manner, maybe a canon. Um, he really spent, uh, I can't say he spent time, we don't know. This may have just been his gift. He just thought these up. So I can't say he spent a lot of time. But the craft and the quality of the themes in the, in the first and third movements are really strong. Um, the middle movement is sort of a, a different animal. It's like if the first and third movements are a little concitato, a little bit um, agitated, a little bit feisty, uh, the middle movement is like taking a, a relaxing time on an island in a hammock and you just get this beautiful melody. And whereas Bach could have constructed this for one instrument with a beautiful melody, with a bass line, of course, it's a double concerto, so there's two voices, and it's sort of this trio sonata type format where he's got the two voices and they can they go back and forth. Uh, it's just an absolute gem of a middle movement that's, that uh, Bach leaves us. So, with that said, three-movement form, that shouldn't be a surprise, fast, slow, fast. He chooses to go in that middle movement with a major key to kind of change things up a bit, give us a little more variety. And the first recording we're going to hear is um, is an early one. This is the earliest in the in the collection of what I own. This was recorded in 1976, and this is um, Gustav Lenhardt. Uh, and this came from a, a uh, album entitled Concerte, um, Concertos, again published in 1976. And I got this uh, recording fairly recently. Uh, after Lenhart died, a uh, number of, of box sets came out, and this is the one that was put out by Sony Music. Uh, a lot of solo recordings by by Lenhart, and several of him with uh, ensembles. And so this is with the Collegium Aurium, and Franz Joseph Mayer is the violinist in this rendition. <laughs>
what'd you think? Kind of an, a wet acoustic. Microphones weren't placed very close. Uh, it's really not a good recording. But again, it was made in 1976. We've learned a lot about making good, faithful recordings since then. Uh, the oboe part, those trills, really fast trills, sounds a little off to me, doesn't sound very natural. I think uh, in some recordings, maybe in the past 15 years, those trills would have t been taken a lot more slowly. And just things like the intonation of the solo violin were a little sketchy there. So... This is the kind of inauguration of historical uh, practice playing on instruments. It's, it's a nice recording to refer back to. And again, this is the, the version for violin and oboe. Um, wouldn't be one that I would uh, clamor for or necessarily recommend. But it's a starting point in the historical record of this concerto. And no doubt that uh, recordings like this helped us get kind of excited for the uh, historically informed performance practice. It also put this concerto in our ears, probably in a slightly faster, slightly more lean version than what folks might have heard, uh, even well into the late 80s through a modern orchestra. Uh, this is something you might go to the symphony to hear, and you might have a, a larger complement of strings, because of that, because of the acoustical space, you have to take things a little more slowly. Now, talk about speed demons. Compare this to um, the Cafe Zimmerman group. We've featured them before, and they've named themselves, obviously, after the Zimmerman's Coffee House. And they've done a collection of Bach concertos. They interspersed their Brandenburg concerto recordings with other Bach concertos. And this, I believe, comes from the second of the volume. And their collection is now available as a box set in six CDs. So this is Café Zimmerman. about you, but for my taste, uh, I like the speed, I like the energy, but there's just a couple times where I'm like, gosh, where, where do you take a breath? Uh, there were some areas between phrases that I would just take in a little bit of a space there. And it, it seems to me that they took a pace and an approach that would have worked better for the version for two harpsichords. Um, but uh, their oboes did a really good job, and so... Evidently, no complaints on that front, but I, I would just like to think of it slightly more organically or, or more uh, humanistically, perhaps, in that 
you just got to, you know, take a breath between the phrases. Uh, when you don't, it just feels just slightly rushed. But maybe you didn't feel that. Well, let's take a look before we move on in the concerto to one of the versions for harpsichords. Now, I'll have to tell you right now, my preference is actually for the version for violin and oboe just because we get color. And I think one of the exchanges you hear there at the beginning of the concerto is the kind of the melodic line for the oboe and then this this uh, technique called burialage in the violin part. The idea that the, that the violin is playing a lot of notes to sort of um, uh, play the chords, right? And they're not playing a chord by just playing all three notes at once, but you're kind of arpeggiating that chord going between the strings to do that. And uh, of course, it's a challenging part. We heard in the in the first version there that, oh gosh, you know, getting all those notes re as they go fast in tune is a challenge. And uh, but that is a characteristic violinist violinistic, if that's a word. Uh, it's a violin technique. Uh, you basically would put your fingers down on multiple strings and you're, uh, you might have to be changing fingers or you might be able to go back in between the strings, keeping the fingers down depending on the passage and how many notes there were there. Uh, but that was, that was sort of not an atypical technique for the violin, which probably led people to say, well, the one part's for the violin, the other part's for a melody instrument, fits the oboe range, and therefore we have a violin and oboe concerto. So now let's, let's just listen to a version for two harpsichords. And I'm going to go back to, again, a somewhat early release. This is from 1980, uh, Trevor Pinnock. And I believe the second uh, harpsichordist would be Kenneth Gilbert. This was released on Archive Production 1980 with the English Concert. So, nice kind of easy tempo, nothing feels too rushed. Everything is going to sort of, um, it helps with transparency a little bit with the parts. But for me, the arrangement just loses something. When, when after the, the main ritornello happens, you know, there's, uh, there's a little opportunity for the solos to peek through. Da, 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 da. It's like an echo effect. Uh, we hear the harpsichords by themselves, but then when they're at it together, it's, it's really hard for me, maybe even in this recording, to hear the two distinct parts. 
And that is a, a drawback, I think, with, with missing the visual in a performance. If we were seeing this live or we're seeing a, even a recording of it, and you could see the two performers, when perhaps if we help things out by separating them uh, on different sides of the stage, we might get more of that two-person team coming together to put something together to concertize. And I just miss it here. Uh, to me, it's not as compelling. And it's a decent recording. Um, I think it's been tweaked just a little bit to keep the harpsichords above the texture. I think one of the things you lose is sort of the transparency in the bass. It tends to be, um, the recording for me is a little middle heavy uh, in the mid band, if you will. Um, there's probably there are better sonics that have come out with some later recordings. But by all means, if you are able to find, I know Archive and uh, Deutsche Grammophon, the parent company, has put out uh, these concertos uh, in a box sets. They're really a great value. They were well done. Nothing too fast, nothing too slow. Uh, There's some scholarship behind it and a all around nice sound, which of course made the English concert in Trevor Pinnock very famous. These recordings were. Uh, I think well received when they came out and have sort of stood the test of time. Um, with that said, we're going to try to listen to something else. When you get to the middle movement, you've got now two harpsichords, and I, I mentioned this is sort of this delicious uh, remote private island type thing. You're, you're just kind of swaying in the hammock, maybe, and you've just got these two lines that just are working so well together. So let's listen to a version of BWV 1060 with Ton Koopman with the Amsterdam Baroque Orchestra and we're going to dive right into the, se the second, the middle slow movement. So we went from two harpsichords to two violins. I skipped ahead and gave you a little comparison there with the Academy of Ancient Music under Andrew Manzi. 
And one of the things that you, if you're familiar with this concerto, that you may have noticed in the Koopman version is how he doesn't wait for a repeat. He just starts ornamenting that line. And it gives a distinction to it. For me, it, it makes a dual harpsichord version work a little better because there's this distinction between the line. And Koopman is one of those players that can sort of step out of the structure that's there for the orchestra. In other words, he he's, is the conductor, he is the director of the ensemble, but he kind of sets them on a tempo there at their auto pace, and that lets him to kind of jump above the fray. And his, uh, his uh, partner in crime, uh, the second harpsichordist, sort of does the same thing, adds a little bit of flavor, if you will, uh, in the ornamentation and just the little bit rubato techniques they use at the harpsichord. For me, I really like that. To me, it's the most interesting um, aspect of their recording that, that came out on the Rato label. The Academy Ancient Music version for me doesn't work as well. Um, I just, I just, there's something about the way they are. Um, they're doing these crescendos and decrescendos with the line and at the pace they chose and it just sounds strange to me. I don't know why. It just doesn't settle well. Um, I like the fact that they're using a medium, slow robot vibrato uh, with the violin. I think that's appropriate for sort of coloring the line. Treatises uh, from the era will talk about the use of vibrato. In the, for the most part, you don't hear a lot of vibrato in, in string playing uh, with historically informed practice. Um, vibrato was thought of as more of as an ornament and with with those long notes it's kind of appropriate but there was something there with the pace and then the way they were rising and falling which in general is a, is a good practice just didn't work for me so I, I'm not the biggest fan of that rendition for two violins um, and so that's that's the slow movement it's, it's just really kind of neat I'm going to give you one of my favorites for this slow movement, and this obviously is one for the violin and oboe, and this comes from Europa Galante, uh, directed by Fabio Biondi. So what'd you think? I think that both soloists in this case are very expressive players, uh, Biondi especially, but also the oboe player, they're just, it's like they're kissing the line almost. They're, they're, they're milking it, but not to an overdone uh, romantic type approach that we might, might hear from a mainstream orchestra. This is 
historically informed, but not necessarily uh, overly academic, which has been a criticism of some historically informed performance practice. Uh, I think it's beautiful. I like the, the pace. It's pretty much the same pace that um, Andrew Manzi took with his version. I just think the expressivity that is exercised by both players is just a little more expertly done than we heard in the in the dual violin version. This is a release from 1999 on the Virgin Veritas label. Again, J.S. Bach Concertos. Uh, it's basically a, a collection of arrangements uh, performed by Europa Galante. Um, and so that's the middle movement of this really well-wrought concerto. Now what's next? Obviously, the third and fast movement. Let's see what Biondi does with his ensemble for that movement in the version for violin and oboe. got a kind of a preview of the style that was going to be used in the previous movement and in this one uh, of course we get this neat theme dun, 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 da, 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 da. the sound quality of this recording is pretty good um, there is a nice separation between the solo instruments and the orchestra but not so much that it sounds like they were uh, you know three yards behind the soloists um, if I'm talking about balance here Oboe sounds great, blends nice with the rest of the ensemble, but the violin for me, Fabio Biondi, is is a little harder to hear. Um, and with his expressive style of playing, he will kind of emerge out of the texture uh, at times, which is nice, but if I were sitting in front of this ensemble and listening, I would expect the violin part, the second soloist, to be a little more prominent. Other than that, it's on a bad recording. I will say about this particular um, release on Virgin Veritas, it is a favorite album, and it's because of one of the concertos on this album, but this is not the one that sort of made it stand out for me. Uh, we have a lot of other examples, as, as the show notes will attest, um, and I'm, I'm certainly, I don't own them all, so there are others out there as well to explore. The next one we're going to take a look at is, again, the oboe and violin um, reconstruction uh, of B2V 1060. And this one is by the Academy for Alta Musik, um, the Academy of Ancient Music, the Berlin version of that on, ensemble. Uh, 
Um, 2005 was their release on the Harmonia Mundi label. And the album is basically violin concerti and double concertos. And I've heard this ensemble uh, before live. Um, I've collected a number of the recordings, and I, I find sometimes I really like their interpretation. Other times I'm mm, a little lukewarm on it. Um, seeing them perform the Brandenburg Concertos live was, was a neat experience. Uh, there were some balance issues with that, and that is something that's, you know, I can hardly blame an ensemble with. Um, really depends on the venue, depends on, you know, how things are arranged in terms of seating. Um, sometimes they can really, you'll be at a deficit because of that. Uh, for that performance, I know I w it was plagued by some of the instruments just being so soft. Um, whereas in a recording, we can cheat with that. You're not going to find that problem in this recording. Um, and we'll give it a listen and then compare it to what we just listened to from Europa Galante. What do you think? Kind of a little even peppier uh, speed. Um, the balance between the instruments to me was was kind of rectified. They seemed like they were equal players. I'm um, not sure the sound quality, the recording distance there was quite as good as the Europa Galante recording. And this is uh, this is this is probably an issue that I find I need to speak about more so than I read in a lot of other reviews. And it's great if you're used to the whole recording, right? If you, if you listen to this as an album and you start, and by the time you get to the end, your ears and your mind are going to adjust to the acoustic piece of the recording. And what I mean by that is you're, you're accustomed to what it sounds like. Your, your body's going to adjust to hearing the ensemble and there is a preference I think you'll find as you compare recordings because as you go back and forth uh, the acoustical signature that was captured with the microphones changes because obviously everybody's not recording in the same space they don't use the same number of microphones the microphones are not mic'd the same distance and of course we've got the height and width of the, the performance space that, that contributes a sound in the recording. And for this one, there's just a little, it's just a little too, the mics are too far away for me, to my preference. 
And that is a preference. And so, you know, it is secondary to the performance, but it is a part of the recording. And I need to point out that while I really liked the dynamic um, things that were happening, you know, dun, 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 they're giving a shape to the music. I like that approach. Um, I like the I like the tempo they chose. Uh, they added bassoon to the basso continuo, which is a performance practice issue. A lot of times, when you get a double reed in the upper part with the oboe, you'll you'll kind of counterbalance that with the with the bassoon and the bass. Kind of like that approach that they took there. So, kind of a neat reading. I I can't tell you why, but through my iTunes collection and this movement in particular, I, I took the time, which I normally don't do unless I'm really moved. I gave it a five-star rating, which probably speaks to the, the energy and to the excitement that they bring to it through their dynamic shading. Um, and I just like how the violin part sticks out because you really realize it's kind of difficult sounding, um, which is what it is, right? So, Cafe Zimmerman, let's compare them. They're kind of the speed demons. Remember that from the first movement? Let's see what they do with the third. Is that a good comparison there? So they've got the they got the energy, they got the drive. I think they benefit from a better recorded sound. They're not they're they're probably using a smaller ensemble. They don't add the bassoon to the bass, but um, probably because they're a smaller ensemble, it's a little tighter sounding, and they've got the closer mics. Uh, I just think it's. Aesthetically, it's it's a nicer package. Even though musically, the one we just heard from the uh, Academy for Alta Music uh, was also quite awesome. So there's there's a lot of options out there for this one. And again, 1060 is a harpsichord double concerto, but it also thankfully exists in an arrangement we pretty much have agreed upon, I think, in terms of the scholarship that Bach wrote this for oboe and violin. And it lives on beyond those two versions as well, as I mentioned. And I'm going to end the uh, podcast today. We'll go out with uh, another arrangement. This arrangement works well for me on the outer movements, although I'm going to end with the middle movement. Um, just because I think it it heightens for me, and I know this is a cliche, but this gives this concerto a little bit of French flavor. Um, the accordion, of course, is not uniquely a French instrument, uh, but having 
uh, watched a number of movies that take place in Paris and having been on the Paris Metro, uh, when I hear the accordion start up, uh, it gives for me that kind of cliche French flavor that seems to live on here. From Richard Galliano, this is from a release he did in 2010, Arrangements of Bach, and among those arrangements, he has included the double concerto, and it is featured here in C minor, but with the accordion and violin. And hope you enjoy this. I hope you enjoyed seeing some different takes on this popular double concerto by Bach. My name is John Hendren, your host for Bachcast. If you'd like to know more, visit our website, bieberfan.org, and there you'll find the show notes. In addition to over several hundred reviews of music recordings. Uh, if you like Baroque, classical, pre-classical, late Renaissance music, and occasionally I even dabble a little bit into jazz, you're going to find lots of recording reviews as well at beaverfan.org. As always, thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.